Before I have Ryan come up and, and preach this morning, um, I would love to read out of Acts 19, which is what the sermon is going to be based around today. So if you have a Bible near you, there are some on the edge of the rows, your phone, or feel free to just sit back and listen. Um, we're going to be reading Acts 19, 23 through 41. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have made our wealth. And you see in here, not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may become into disrepute, but also that the temple of our great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she, she may be even disposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who are Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him, and even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemous of our goddess. If, therefore, Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open, and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly, for we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Well, good morning. Um, we continue our journey through the book of Acts here together. Um, we like to change up uh, how we do church every now and then, and so uh, thank you for reading the Word. This is the passage we'll be working from today. Thank you to Allie. Well, like I said earlier, um, if you uh, kind of came in after I, I introduced myself, my name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here, and today we're actually going to look, uh, we're going to continue our journey through the book of Acts here. In Acts, we see really how Christianity spread through the Roman world, and, and we've been doing this every week in a series that we're calling Witness. We're calling Witness because in the book of Acts, we see Jesus' uh, followers witness to who he is and who God is and, uh, and, who, and really what God is doing in the world uh, throughout the, really the whole Roman Empire. And, and we're doing this because what's really interesting about the book of Acts is that it has a huge claim to what real and what authentic Christianity looks like. And in our day and age, there's a host of Christianities out there. And so for, for the, the real question for anybody who's trying to consider Jesus and his resulting community um, is what does authentic or what does real Christianity actually look like? in the book of Acts. The book of Acts is, is the book, the place to go, the narrative that has the greatest claim to what real 
Christianity looks like. In fact, some of my most favorite conversations with people um, in, uh, in Seattle that don't go to church involve me asking about their spiritual background, and they'll say something along the lines of, I used to go to church, but I don't anymore, and I'll ask them why, and they'll say something along the lines of, you know, I just couldn't believe this, or I just couldn't believe that. And most times, I get the wonderful opportunity, I relish this opportunity, to say, hey, I'm a Christian pastor, and I don't believe that either. I can't get on board with that either. You know, there are so many people in our culture, in our society, in our city, who have left Christianity because it's They've actually encountered inauthentic or unreal expressions of it. And so the big thing that we have to consider is um, if you're going to reject Christianity rightly, you have to understand what real Christianity is. And even perhaps even more importantly, if you're going to embrace Christianity rightly, we have to understand what Christianity, real Christianity is is, okay? And so that's why we've really been looking in the book of Acts, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? What is that, what did he authentically view that as looking like together, okay? And we come across this account here in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 19, and it's a rather unusual event, actually, but it's an event that's all about idolatry, idolatry. Now, idolatry is a theme that is present from the beginning to the end in the book of Acts, but it's really starting to come about in the ministry of Paul as we've transitioned from the ministry of Peter in the first half to the ministry of Paul in the second half. He comes into contact with idolatry and preaches about idolatry a lot. So if you were here last week, we preached through Acts chapter 17, and and Paul dealt directly with idols there too, okay? And, And here in the city of Ephesus, we see that he has spoken about idols a good bit. He's spoken about idols a really good bit for his, he was really in Ephesus for three years. And, and you see, much like the intellectual city of Athens, um, God loved this city of Ephesus, and so he sent Paul to bring the gospel to it. And in Acts chapter 18, we actually see that Paul stopped by Ephesus at the end of his second missionary journey. He was actually probably only there for a few days, but he preached there, and some people became Christians. And then there's a small resulting house church left in Ephesus until Paul comes back up into Ephesus from, uh, he was down, he he lived and operated primarily out of modern-day Syria. Ephesus is in Turkey on the coast. He, He comes in his third missionary journey and makes a stop along Ephesus. And little did he know that this stop would occupy the next three years of his life. So Paul spends a full three years in Ephesus. What did that look like? Well, the first three months, um, he actually operated from his, his uh, he had this game plan to every city he went. He'd start in the synagogue, start telling Jews about Jesus. And so he does this for about three months before the, the leading Jews in the synagogue um, decide that they can't get on board with this gospel anymore. They can't get on board with Paul at all. And so they start, pe- they start teaching against Paul. They start teaching against the gospel of Jesus, but Paul's been at this for three months, and he's already uh, garnered quite the following here in Ephesus, and so he says, okay, I'll go elsewhere, and there's a a believer in Ephesus named Tyrannus, and Tyrannus had a school hall, and so for the next two and a half years, they would meet in this school hall in Ephesus, much like this, much like this. This is what they did in Ephesus. So this is a good step towards real and authentic Christianity. You're doing it. (laughs) 
No, what we do ask the question of what is real and authentic Christianity? How can we find it? And that's actually a very, very complex question. And it actually has a very complex answer. But really, where we can start to answer that thing is um, we see that Paul preached about idols every, everywhere he went. And so that idolatry is part of this gospel message, okay? And, and, and in order to understand this riot here, we're going to see how idolatry is part of this message in this riot here. And in order to understand this riot here at the end of Paul's time in Ephesus, we have to wrap our heads around this city. And then we can roll our, up our sleeves and deal with the idolatry. You see, Ephesus was one of the largest cities in the Roman Empire at this point. It had a quarter of a million people quarter of a million people, 250,000 people in this city. That's a big city. It was on the coast, uh, so it was a commerce center. Lots of trade went in and out of Ephesus. But most importantly, the city of Ephesus had the temple of Artemis within it. The temple of Artemis. Now, this temple was built about 900 years before Paul shows up on the scene, but still almost a millennium later, it is the largest temple in the Roman Empire. It was enormous. It was enormous. It was decorative. It was 150 yards long, 80 yards wide. This is much, much, much larger than a football stadium, okay? It, was a lar- it, was known, it came to be known as one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. Very beautiful. People from throughout the Roman Empire would come and travel to Ephesus, which was the capital of the province of Asia. They'd travel to Ephesus to worship this god Artemis, this goddess Artemis. She was the goddess of fertility. There is a, a, a monthly festival every month to, to Artemis that took the whole weekend. There was a yearly festival to Artemis that took an entire week in the springtime. And so you would have couples traveling to Ephesus all year long in the hopes that they could get pregnant. This is actually one of the, the, the biggest cults in the Roman Empire was this cult of Artemis, this goddess of fertility. And so uh, it is a huge central part of the economy of Ephesus at this point, okay? And, and, and it's clear from this account that, that this gospel of Jesus that Paul preached, this authentic uh, preaching of Jesus included preaching against idols, Demetrius, the silversmith, right, uh, the, uh, uh, from the account that Ali read, um, he puts two and two together for us. He says, hey, hold up. Everybody who becomes Christians is no longer traveling to Ephesus. They're no longer worshiping Artemis. Uh, they're no longer buying these little gift shop trinkets that the silversmith trade was involved in. This is going to hurt our economy, he says. This is going to hurt our economy. And so, so really what we have to understand here is that I'm not sure that we can fully understand the gospel or understand the implications of the gospel without fully wrapping our head around what idolatry is. And there's a common objection at this point, and it goes something like this. Well, that was then. This is now. We're, we're not the same superstitious people of the first century, of, of the Romans of the first century. We're not polytheistic anymore. We're, we're not animistic any longer. Uh, people don't believe in many gods. People hardly believe in any god. They can't even uh, fully wrap our heads around one god, right? Like, we're not, we don't worship idols anymore. But if, if you're going to say that, with all due respect, it shows that you might be a little bit naive, a little bit naive to how life works. Because if you want to understand American culture, you need to listen to one of our sermon series that we did this summer. 
Okay, this summer we did a sermon series that, where we unpacked a sociological textbook called Habits of the Heart, which has been one of the leading sociological texts uh, that goes over late American culture and primarily individualism. And, and we unpacked that for four weeks this summer. If you missed it, I'll just give you a high-level view of one of the points here. Um, it argues that American culture and its population, no matter where, where you come from, what your background is, has this notion of expressive individualism tied to it. No matter where you come from, where, where you come from. And, and when it's applied to religion, it goes like this, that Americans feel that no one has the right to tell them who God is, no one has the right to tell them what to believe, that they have their own right to individually define and shape their own spirituality and their own faith. And they have uh, the, the right to worship the God whom they like and whom they prefer. And no one else has the right to define that for them. That makes this relationship between you and me potentially awkward. <laughs> because I'm up here, and I'm trying to tell you some true things about God. But in our expressive individualist culture, one of the main drives and one of the main threads throughout it is, I'll choose what to believe about who God is, and I'll choose how to worship him. And so they, they conceive of a God that, that they like, that they prefer, and pursue a method of worship that makes them comfortable. This is, this is part of what it means to be an American, okay? And, and so at the very heart of American culture actually is the very thing that Paul says we can't do, create and worship idols, in Acts 17, he said, you cannot create your own God, but that's the very thing that we conceptualize of as our right as an American citizen, to create our own God and worship it. And so idolatry is very much so at the heart of American culture. It's very relevant to our discussion of what authentic Christianity looks like today, okay? And this is a very important topic then, and so if you're not a Christian, it's a great week to walk into church because you're going to get very clear on this huge side of this huge aspect of what the gospel is and what the gospel speaks to. But you're actually going to see something else that's pretty cool too because even Christians struggle with idolatry throughout their entire lives. And so to be a Christian does not necessarily mean that one doesn't worship idols, Christians frequently worship idols. But to be a Christian means to continually and constantly consider the gospel of Jesus and how it gives us tools for identifying idols in our lives and leaving them behind. And, and that's primarily what we're going to concern ourselves with today, okay? And so we're going to talk about three big points today about idols, okay? The first one um, is we're going to talk about the prevalence of idols, Idols are pervasive in our culture, and so we're going to talk about that a little bit so you can maybe begin to wrap your head around what they might look like. And the second, we're going to talk about the weakness and power of idols. You see, idols and idol worship uh, contains this paradoxical element of, of weakness and power. Okay, so we're going to talk about that for a little bit. And third, we're going to talk about destroying idols, both the, both the cost of that and how we might actually do it, okay? So you got the flow? All right. Pervasiveness, weakness, and power, and then destroying. Let's talk about, a little bit about the pervasiveness of idols. Idols are pervasive. That's point one. So I just said that they're everywhere in American culture, that uh, it's not, idols aren't just for superstitious people, and that begs the question, well, what actually is an idol if it's not bowing down to a physical statue that we've created? What does that actually look like then? 
Well, you, you may believe in God, Christian teaching, the Bible, go to church all the time. But if there's anything in your life other than God that is functionally, that's the key word here, that's functionally more important to your happiness, your identity, your hope, your security, and your meaning, that functionally is your God. You see, we're talking about functionality here. It's not necessarily what you confess with your mouth, but how you live your life. We, we can sing praise songs about how God is our everything. Some of those praise songs can even trickle down into our prayers. But there are some major ways in how you live your, wife, your life, I don't care who you are, that suggests otherwise, okay? It's true for you. It's true for me. And, and, and this, is, this, is a, this is how we need to conceive of idolatry then. Idolatry is not necessarily doing bad things. Idolatry is taking good things and making them ultimate things. It's taking relative things, it's taking creative, or created things and making them absolute things. Well, what, what do I mean by that? Well, the, the language of idolatry goes something like this, and perhaps you can recognize it within yourself. It says, yes, I have God and Jesus, and that's all important stuff, but if I could just have that... If I could just achieve this, if I could just look like that, well, then I would really be something. Then people would really notice me. Then I could really be truly happy and safe and secure in life. You see, that that's the language of idolatry. That's how you know it's a greater source of hope and happiness than God. And sometimes we can get confused and, and think of bad things as being the primary expressions of idolatry in life, things like drugs and alcohol. And, and to be certain, these things are definitely idols because you look to them to help you deal with life and instead of looking to God, certainly. But it's a mistake to think that most idolatry is like that. The most powerful and prevalent idols in our society, in our cultures, uh, they're the good things that we turn into ultimate things. Here are some examples, okay? Um, romance. Romance or, or marriage can be a very powerful idol. Now, here's the thing. Those are good. Th that's a good thing. God built that into the human experience. It's a good thing that God wants for you, but it's not the ultimate thing. When we start to look to that as that which will fully satisfy us and make us happy, it's become an idol. Um, job or career um, can be an idle job or career. Now, now, work is good, right? Work is really, really good. In fact, God created humans and, and put us on earth and built in all this potential. He packed all this potential into the earth that we might go harvest it and be creative and, and bring about some pretty awesome things. But if we look to our work and our job as that which will ultimately produce security and safety and longevity in our life, we've made it an idol. Political and social causes can be idols. These are often good things. They're meant to bring about good results and real tangible benefits to real people's lives. But we can tend to look at them and view them as that which will bring ultimate peace, ultimate safety, ultimate happiness, and ultimate contentment or security or hope to society. When in the reality, God is the one who is really meant to occupy that slot so we can make it an idol. Um, one more, um, our, our image can be an idol. If I just looked like that, if I just weighed this much, if I just had those clothes, then I would be something. Then people would recognize me. 
accept me, respect me, or love me. It's become an idol at that point. And now this list can go on and on. Uh, family, parents' approval, success of your children, even your own moral decency can be an idol. All good things, all things that we can turn into ultimate things that we put more hope into than God for our key needs as humans, our identity, our joy, our hope. You see, in the first century, there is a sex god. There is a work god. There is a play god. There is a war god and a peace god. And we, we look at them and we say, oh, what silly superstitious people. But actually, to interact with idolatry is part of the unified human fallen experience. All of us go through this. They were just very explicit and conscious about what is very implicit and subconscious in our lives. That, that is, they were externally clear on the sources of their hope and security, okay, while we internalize it. They, they worshiped the gods that were lined up in rows along their roads. We worship the gods that are lined up inside of our hearts. So we all have gods that we worship. Here's an example, okay. Um, in, in March of this year, ESPN uh, published an online article where a, uh, a reporter followed Ichiro through his, a week of his off-season preparation in, in Japan. And it's actually one of the most eerie pieces of journalism, uh, I guess of sports journalism, I could say, that I've actually ever read. It was very eerie. It starts with some quotes from his teammates, um, like D. Gordon of the Mariners, he's an infielder. He says, I just hope he keeps playing, Gordon says with a chuckle, because I don't want him to die. I, I believe he might die if he doesn't keep on playing. And this was actually confirmed by Ichiro himself, who last year a Miami reporter asked him, hey, Ichiro, what are you going to do after baseball? And he just stone-faced looked at this guy and says, I think I'll just die. These stories and many other stories make the same point in this article that Ichiro throughout his life methodically stripped away everything from his life except for baseball. Every winter, he leaves his wife back in the United States for months to train in Japan. The, the, the article says he cannot escape the patterns, burn, the patterns burned into him as a boy. His American teammates all talk about how he still polishes his gloves and his spikes as he was taught. He works out every day without break, forsaking even a family, wearing shorts in the freezing Kobe winter. He's made a $160 million fortune and can't enjoy it. He's earned his rest but can't take it. He's won his freedom, but he doesn't want it. You see, there's some ultimate thing that Ichiro saw himself as attaining, probably still sees himself as attaining through baseball, that he's ditched all other good things in life to pursue. He, he ditched his health. There's a story in there about how before opening day, Ichiro was really struggling with a significant um, stomach ulcer. And the, his doctor looked at him and says, hey, man, like you use that part of your body when you swing a bat a lot. And if you, you could rip this thing wide open and it could kill you. And Ichiro stone-faced looked at him and said, I'll take my chances. See, he ditched his health, his wife, his pursuit of a family. Now that he's at the end of his obsessive career, the, the, the evaluation by his friends and even himself is that he has nothing left to live for. That's when you know. That's when you know that you're worshiping something, that it's become your God, that it's become your master, your spiritual master, when everything, even the good things, are ditched so that you can have that one thing. Now, this is an extreme example, or is it? Is it? 
I'm not so sure that it is. I think that this can happen to each and every one of us. I think all of us are in danger of this. We have our idols that we pursue at the cost of other good things that God has for us. We ditch meaningful and real relationships to save on our image. We, we ditch uh, children, perhaps even to profit a career. We ditch relationship with one person to experience a variety of sexual encounters with many people. All of us have idols that we interact with and pursue in this life, okay? Idols are prevalent. They're pervasive. They're everywhere. That's point one. Point two, um, idols, according to the Bible, and you can even see it in this passage, are a strange paradoxical mixture of weakness and of power. Weakness and at the same time, power. You can see the power, right, in this, in this passage. Paul preaches against idolatry. He does it everywhere he goes. And what happens? A riot. And all of a sudden, Paul's life is hanging in the balance. But the point is, is that just by pushing back against idolatry, look at the violent, riotous, angry response of the entire city. They're all whipped up into a frenzy and filled the theater. 24,000 people could fill this theater. Its ruins actually exist today. I had the opportunity to visit them. Here's some pictures. It's pretty cool. The, the, the amphitheater in Ephesus. It's enormous. That's, that's from a little ways away. I think we have an overhead shot. Boom, it's huge. 24,000 people could fit in there. I think we have a photo from the inside. Yeah, right there. Paul almost died down there. <laughs> it's an enormous theater. You see, this theater is full of a riding crowd, but, but here's the point. If you take something away from someone, and it's just a good thing to them, it might be sad, maybe a little mad, but if you take something away from someone, and it's an idol, they'll be devastated. They'll go ballistic on you. You see, idols end up actually controlling powerfully the people who worship them. And when you push back on them, they'll push back on you. They actually have a lot of power. And this is so clearly illustrated here in Acts 19. It's a very unusual passage in the book of Acts because the book of Acts tends to go like this in the narrative. Um, a crazy or, or bonkers scene happens, and then you have one of the people of God, whether it be an apostle or I think Stephen steps up in Acts chapter 7, and they provide an explanation of what just happened and then a way forward. That's not what happens here in Acts 19. Who's the person that actually steps up? You have a crazy event that takes place, and the person that steps up to explain what's going on and what the way forward is? It's a non-Christian. It's the city manager. It's Chris Traeger, for those of you who watch Parks and Rec. The city manager steps in and says, whoa, 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 hold up, guys. You guys are accusing this Paul of being in danger of disrupting the, the social economic order here in the city? Do you see what you guys are doing? You guys are the ones disrupting the political and, and, uh, and social order going on here right now. In fact, if the Romans were to, were to catch wind of this, they'd impose martial law on us for fear that we were going to try to revolt from the empire. You think Paul's going crazy? You guys are out of control here. You see, the, their quest for economic and social order actually led to a disruption of that same order. You see, idols actually never give what they promise. They give you the opposite Anything you make more important than God is going to do that. Idols are good things that we place expectations of identity, happiness, hope, and security upon. Expectations that they actually can't stand up under. 
promises they don't have the power to keep because they were never meant to do so. They always come up short. Um, the novelist David Foster Wallace uh, spoke to this inadequacy of idols. Um, he himself was actually not a Christian, um, but not long before his unfortunate suicide, as one who had wrestled with addictions throughout his life, he spoke these words to the 2005 graduating class at Kenyon College. Um, if you're in the gospel class, you get to hear this quote twice in one month. You're so lucky. Okay. He said this. He said, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. You'll never feel like you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure. You'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die, I love this, this quote, you will die a million deaths before people finally grieve you. Worship power, you'll end up feeling weak and afraid, and you'll need ever more power over others to numb your own fear. Worship your intellect being seen as smart. You will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious things about these forms of worship is they're unconscious. They're default settings. You see, the gospel of Jesus seeks to make conscious these unconscious default settings and reset them to how we, meant to, how we were meant to operate before sin showed up on the scene and twisted us. Perhaps a good way to illustrate this story is actually to just tell you the story of an idol I discovered in my life recently. My wife, Christy, is actually finishing up her master's uh, degree right now. She, she's doing her master's thesis this fall. And back in, in July or August, um, she found out that she had to take an, uh, another class in addition to graduate, okay? And um, for anybody who's in higher education, those aren't cheap. <laughs> and it's not something that we had planned for. And, and back at the beginning of the year, we took this class to wrap our heads around finances. And in that class, I said, you should probably have an emergency fund of sorts. So just in case anything were to happen, you could have uh, some money to draw from to get you through that time. And so we had set up a goal to get our emergency fund funded by a certain date. And, and it was clear that this four grand was going to push us way back in that goal. And I was upset. I was, I was upset on the outside. I was in turmoil on the inside. I had made this pile of money my form of security and safety in the world. That's what I had done. It, it was really devastating to me. I was really upset by this. I couldn't get to the point of being like, how cool is it that we did that? Because now we don't have to go into debt. How sweet is that? I, I couldn't celebrate it. That's how I know it had become an idol. I was leaning on that for security in the world over leaning on God. Somehow I, I had made that switch where I no longer um, relied on God to provide for me and my family in the ways that he's called us to bring uh, really his gospel to the world, uh, Christie's continuing education being a part of it. You see? I was worshiping money as a means to security, essentially, okay? And so the great irony and paradox of idolatry is, is while we think that they, these idols have all this power, while that, that stack of that pile of money had all this power, and I powerfully reacted when it was threatened, they actually don't deliver. They leave us empty, 
They leave us wanting. They're actually really weak when they become idols. Okay? So uh, let's do a second example here. If a love partner or another human um, becomes the divine ideal to fulfill our ultimate ideas of companionship in this life, physical, emotional, spiritual, they become an idol. And, and when we love our love partners like this and they become idols, this can happen if you're not married or if you are married both ways, we actually end up killing our partners with our expectations of them. And then in turn, their imperfections drive us crazy. Everybody loses. Yeah, and you can apply this to any idol. At the end of the day, when we take good things and try to make them the ultimate things, they can't hold that level of expectation we put upon them. They let us down. They're actually weak. Okay? And until God's love is more important to you than someone else's love of you, until God's opinion is more important to you than someone else's opinion of you, until even God's family is more important to you than your own family, that's a crazy thing to say. Jesus is the one who said that first. But until those things happen, you'll be a miserable slave to the idols that are driving you because they actually make us weak. All right, so, so that's point two. Idols are a strange mixture of power and of weakness. Okay, now, now point three. Destroying idols costs us something. Costs us something. How might we actually do it? Well, here's the thing about idols. The only way to destroy idols is to do so at a cost. We, we see this in a very real way in our event here at the theater that we just looked at. This rage, that idolatry, this a huge rage. Like Paul's life was in the balance. He had pushed back against idols and it almost cost him his very life. Normally we see Paul just step into situations like this. He's like, I don't care if it's going to cost you my life. But in reality... What's really cool is actually in, earlier in Acts 19, he becomes very clear that God's calling him to go to Jerusalem and then back up to Rome to bring the gospel to Rome. And so his friends are like, hey, man, if you set, if you set foot in that place, you're going to die. Paul's like, okay, I'll pass. <laughs> I'd rather not pay for the price of preaching against idolatry with the cost of my life. But this is actually kind of a cool element of the story. We actually have these disciples and what are called Asiarchs. These were like city council members. Um, telling Paul, hey, man, you should not go there because you are going to die. And, and this is one of the things that we can get nervous about if we preach against idols in this city. We can say, hey, you know what? If we do that, we're just going to incite a riot. But in reality, there's people who get on board with it. There's people who are like, you know what? My worship of idols is making me miserable. I'd love to get away from that. There, there's a phrase that we say here at Sedaris that goes like this, have you considered Jesus? That's not like a stab or a poke or anything. That's an honest question for people who maybe they're tired of worshiping their idols. Maybe they're feeling how weak their idol worship has been in their lives. And they're like, you know what? Maybe I could put my ultimate source of identity, hope, security, whatever it may be that's failing them in Jesus. Have you considered Jesus? This is a phrase that's meant to minister to people whose idols are letting them down. Have you considered Jesus? Let's do an example of this, too, um, that idols cost us something. There's, there's a common thread in the midst of most cities like Seattle that goes like this. You hear it in almost any growing corporate environment, and it goes like this. Get on board with idolizing that, this company. That is, tie your security to its success. Put your image and its profitability. Tie your career to its success. Give everything you have that we might be able to turn a profit and have more influence, and it will go well for you here. 
It'll go well for you here. And the hours get longer and longer, and you sacrifice more and more of the good things that God has for you outside of the workplace. I think if this isn't true of every workplace, but I think for many of us, if we're honest, if you want to succeed in your workplace, you have to idolize that company on a certain level. You have to say, and hopefully the gospel, what the gospel says, it empowers you to say, I'm not going to make this company my idol. I'm not going to tie my security to it. I'm not going to tie my joy to it. I'm not going to tie my ultimate purpose to it. If we were to behave from that mindset, it might cost some of us something in our workplace, all right? You see, so, so not going along with the public worship of idols, it actually costs us something. Why is that? This is the part where we get to talk about Jesus. Well, it's because the power behind idols is not primarily human, okay? There are forces at play in, in the city of Ephesus behind the worship of Artemis there. There are forces at play behind the idol worship in our city that are driving people to powerfully react when they are threatened. Paul wants to enter that theater not to rebuke these people, but Paul is looking at these people in compassion being like, man, they're being driven by an idol. They're not even controlling themselves. It's clear. I want to get in there and hopefully convince them that, that they don't need to, to follow this empty idol any longer. And at the end of his life, he actually wrote a letter back to this church in emphasis talking about this very dynamic. There's powers and principalities at play that are controlling people, not that the people aren't necessarily acting out of their own free agency. There's a combination of the two in the book of Ephesians. Let's throw that on up here. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers. You see that? Over this present darkness. Against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You see, there are evil forces behind these things. Paul is saying that, well, Paul's not almost put to death by the people here in this theater. He's almost put to death because of the powers and principalities who are controlling them. And that, that's how we understand the death of Jesus. Jesus in his day confronted idols, more of these implicit idols that were present within a very religious society. He confronted these idols and was killed by the powers and principalities that were concerned with the proliferation of these idols. They conspired to put him to death, and they eventually did. But here's what's fascinating, and Paul says this in his letter to the church in, in Colossia. Colossae? I don't know how to say that. That, that, that. He started this one too. Paul says that Jesus, that Jesus actually disarmed these same rulers and authorities in his death. Look at it in, in Colossians with me. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And what happened also when this happened? He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. You see how Jesus did this? Jesus eliminated the power that, idol that idols have by dying and paying the price, the ultimate cost for idol worship. There's a really interesting dynamic in the Old Testament that goes like this. God says that he's Israel's husband. 
that I'm your husband, and that when Israel worships other gods, it's very, there's an analogy and a metaphor that goes like this. It's like a, a, a man or a woman cheating on their spouse. It was adultery. Idolatry is likened to spiritual idolatry in the Old Testament time and time and time again, where, where God says, hey, when you put yourselves in the arms of other gods, you're being unfaithful to me. But, but here's what's really interesting, because there, there's some of these texts, primarily in, in the book of Hosea, uh, Jeremiah 3, a couple places in Ezekiel 2, God says that because of, the idol- of this idolatry, because of this spiritual adultery, you could say, I will divorce you, and then I'm going to bring you back. Now, this is very interesting, because the penalty for adultery was not divorce. You see that? In God's law, the penalty for adultery was death. And so this divorce is a toned-down version of the penalty for adultery. Moreover, it's a penalty that's not final, and it's going to come to an end. That's what the promise in the Old Testament prophets is. And this can happen because Jesus took that full penalty of death for our idolatry. Jesus, our true husband, came to earth and bore the cost of idolatry, of, of spiritual adultery, so that he can judge evil one day, but still hold us in his arms so that he can end evil without ending us as evil idol worshipers. You see that? And so they come at a cost, and Jesus paid it. So if anyone in this room today has any self-knowledge, I think you've seen something in in yourself in the way that we've been talking about idols. And the question is, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? Three things. These are, there are three things that, that we can do about this. They have to do with the heart, one with the heart, one with the mind, and one with our hands or our actions. Actually, if you want to talk about just spiritual growth in general, it always comes through all three of these things happening at the same time. That They're, they're kind of like a braid that's braided together. I have daughters. I braid. Like, if, if you leave one of those out, then you're going to get some weird lumps in your braid, okay? No, but you need to put all three of these together braid them together in order to see spiritual maturity come about. So let's start with the heart. Counterintuitively, in in cases where the idols we love are not the the harmful idols of of drugs and, and alcohol and the like, the solution is not to love idols less. The solution is not to love your husband, wife, or, or hope for a boyfriend or girlfriend less. The solution is not to love your children less or love your job less. No, you actually need to love God more. You actually need to love God more. Well, how do I do that? Well, the way that we love God more is we actually have to look at Jesus dying for us on the cross. We actually have to time and time again walk back to the foot of the cross, kneel before the cross, and behold this God who would pay the cost of idolatry for us in the midst of a humanity that is throwing themselves in the arms of other gods. He comes down, and instead of killing them, he kills himself. He takes it on himself. That's incredibly beautiful. Jesus as the Lamb of God on the cross sacrificing himself. But he's not just a lamb up there. He's also a lion up there. This is the Jesus who came out, and he, he was decisive and said, you know what? I'm going to take this on my shoulders because they can't bear it on their own, and I'm going to die for their sin on the cross. Jesus, the lamb and the lion of God. It, go to the cross 
Behold it. Let it melt you. Let it change you. That's actually how you'll be inspired to love God. Because in the cross, we see this beautiful expression of an amazing God and a recognition of our own lowliness. And the gap that that bridges is amazing. So love God more. That's number one. Number two is, uh, has to do with our minds. And it goes like this. Uh, we must learn to accept that all good things are gifts from God. All good things are gifts from God. We need to steward or we need to start a life of uh, thankfulness for all the good things in our life, even all the good things that we hope for. We need to recognize that if we get them, they come from God. We need to recognize that if we have them, they're part of his providential love and goodness that he has opened his hand and given them to us. That's the mind thing, that God is the ultimate provider. So that's the heart, and that's the mind application. Now for the hand application. Now, remember, this is a braid. All three of these happen at the same time. Sometimes the hand application, or you can do and start acting differently, differently before your heart necessarily has that change. Sometimes that's hard, that's hard for us to wrap our heads around because we say, you know, I, I, when I act in the world, I want to act authentically, and that's good. That's really good. We definitely want our hearts to be aligned with our outward actions, but the reality is, is that sometimes, this, this is a braid, right? Sometimes one of these outpaces the other ones, and it pulls the other ones along. This is how spiritual growth happens, and, and so Jesus spoke to this a little bit when he said, wherever you put your money, there your heart's going to follow. Whatever you do with your money, whether you give it, whether you invest it, whether you, whether you buy things, whether you, you bury it in a field somewhere, your heart is going to follow it. It's very interesting, right? Actions sometimes yank our heart around, okay? So it, it's a braid. So um, this is the third one. Ask the Holy Spirit how he wants to use those good gifts God has given you and do it. And do it. Now, what just popped up in your mind of the thing that you're scared to ask the Holy Spirit that question of? That's likely an idol. That's okay. That's okay. All of us have something came up in every person's mind right there, okay? You're not alone. Something came up in my mind, okay? That's, that's the idol. Ask the Holy Spirit what you might do with it and see what happens Take a step of faith and reliance upon God. That if you do that, your heart will catch up, your mind will catch up, and you'll start to grow. And so when, when we start, the gospel is that which gives us the power to engage idolatry in a very meaningful, very real way. And hopefully we can stop raising our, our hands uh, to idols. And instead, when we stop that, we look down, we realize that the idols aren't outside of us. They're actually just in our hands. They're good things from God. We can use them to bless others and to bless the world and ultimately bring glory to God. Amen? Let's pray. Father, um, I praise you, for, um, praise you for how many good things you've given us as a people, God. I look out at my friends here, and I see that they are so blessed by, by how you have, have moved, the, the good things that you have given to them, God. And Lord, as we, as we process through our idols in, in life, Lord, I just ask right now that, that you would just give us hearts of vulnerability and hearts of honesty. God, that, that you would help us realize that, that idolatry will, will be part of our life to the very end even, Lord. That all sin is in some level 
an expression of, of us making other things more of a God than you. So right now, we just ask for forgiveness right now. We know that you love us and that you do forgive us because you sent your son to die for us for this, even before we even asked for the forgiveness, God. So God, I just, I just uh, hope that you would uh, send us out in courage that we might take some real steps to grow in you this week, God, both in heart, or all three, heart, mind, and in our actions, God. We pray all this in, in the name of Jesus and by your Holy Spirit. Amen.